This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, Silver Lake, and West Los Angeles. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, to create a facility that treats addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. They care about their patients, which is why it is such an amazing place to go. They have decades and decades of experience in treating addiction, alcoholism, and co-occurring mental health disorders, including, I've heard, they treat severe mental illness. They also have amenities that are amazing, from surfing to equine therapy to sound bath meditation to the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge which I did, but not an aloe. It was, it was kind of spiritually transformative. They also make sure that your detox is as cozy and comfortable as possible, which is very hard to do, but they do their best to make sure it is a comfortable detox. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I totally suggest going to aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our old and wonderful friends at Sober Buddy. I want to talk to you guys about Sober Buddy since it's super available to you if you need some help with your sobriety. It's the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. You can either use their free service called Sober Buddy Mail, which is a daily email with bite-sized sober challenges plus motivation and tips that are super helpful, or you can download the Your Sober Buddy app, which is an interactive version that shifts your challenges and motivations based on how you respond to it. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. They know that somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable, handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professionals, recovery coach, or anyone else who might be worried about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to Dopey listeners, email info at Soberlink.com and mention Dopey for 50 bucks off your device. Do it for that someone who cares. This episode of Dopey, most importantly, is brought to you by you guys in the Dopey Nation through the magic and mystery of Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And there's so much stuff on Patreon. There's the never-before-seen-last-Jewish-waiter fucking sizzle reel. There's weird videos. There's new videos coming up. Last week, I talked to a psychic who said she contacted Chris. There's so, there's interviews with people in the Dopey Nation. There's interviews with ex-drug dealers. There's interviews with lots of people. There's old funny bits. There's a shitload of stuff in Dopey Patreon. But mostly, when you give to Dopey Patreon, you're helping make Dopey better, which I really appreciate. So please kick down to 
the Dopey Patreon at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Help us make the show better. Kick into Patreon. It's very helpful. Also, if you want gear, go to dopeypodcast.com. Any week now, a bunch of shit is coming off that website. So if you have your eyes on some special design, order it now. We are partnered with SRO Prints, an amazing merchandise company out of Ohio, made of junkies like you or me. And we are going to take shit down soon. So buy now. Our prices are insane. Also, I have hats. Buy dopey snapbacks from me at Venmo. Just Venmo me. And stickers. New stickers are coming. Check them out. We also have Oyve snapbacks available if you're looking for an Oyve snapback in your life. Anyway, enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I'm alone at my father's apartment. And I cannot tell you the joy this brings me. It is like 83 degrees on a sunny day in New York City. And it's like I'm a kid again. My dad's not here. He's watching Game of Thrones reruns. I'm eating fucking chicken thighs and roasted vegetables for lunch. I feel like the king of the universe. Isn't that interesting that to be a child in my father's home makes me feel like the king of the universe? It reminds me of the good old days when I would watch 21 Jump Street and eat frozen pizzas without fear of reprisal from anybody. When everyone was at work and I was the latchkey kid. It also reminds me of a very grim period where, uh, you know, when I became a heroin addict, I lived down the street. Uh, My dad lives on 27th Street and I lived on 24th Street. And I remember after I got fired and I was kind of trying not to use heroin, I would come here every day and they would be at work or wherever they would be. And I would sit at my dad's computer and I would use Napster and I would just make discs. It was before streaming. Napster, for all of you young people out there, Napster was this program that allowed you to get music for free. And I just sat in my, my childhood room, which was then my dad's office, you know, kind of in some stage of, uh, withdrawal or high or on methadone in one of those stages and I would just pump out discs and I probably made 10 mixes that I wound up taking to Florida to rehab because I was an outpatient at the time and on methadone but um it's funny those are the memories I think of when I'm in the house alone I also think that Chris and I got to record here a few times when no one was around but uh it does make me feel good to be here And we just got back from Kalahari, the water park, to celebrate my daughter's birthday. If you're a Patreon member, you heard the big Kalahari story. Not that there really was one, but I'm not going to go crazy about it now. But one thing at Kalahari that they do is it's got this, like, very, very, very intense game room. And most of the games you play to try to win tickets. And basically, you, like, spend a shitload of money to win these tickets that kids use to buy total garbage. Like, I probably spent 
$200 or, or maybe even more on these games over the course of uh, three days that me, Linda, Susan, and Nora played. And Nora wound up with a, just a bunch of junk. But f- and she, she gets is these fidget toys, which I fucking hate. These, the, the new thing for kids are fidget toys and squishy toys. And I just can't believe that, that kids want it. But they do. But I'll tell you, when you win the game, it is such an exhilarating feeling. It makes me understand why uh, like gamblers love to gamble because it's so amazing to win. Even to win 500 tickets that can buy you like some total piece of shit plastic toy makes you feel good. It fills you up. And um, I felt that a few times. And then I kind of felt cravings to win more tickets. And in the end, we got a bunch of junk. But it reminds me, uh, there's a phenomenon that's kind of going on right now. And I've been witness to a lot of people who are really deep into this phenomena. And it is the phenomenon of uh, of cryptocurrency and how and I believe it runs very very parallel if not totally on the same line as gambling addiction and everyone well not everyone but I know a lot of people who are super invested in crypto and uh, and I think today the bottom dropped out I went to get my haircut and Igor who is a a mad crypto guy, a mad investing haircutting Jew from uh, Georgia in the former Soviet Union, was screaming and yelling at me how he wished he had known yesterday and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and even I am a little bit invested in crypto and lost a little bit of my profits. And everyone at Katz's were talking about it. And it's just interesting. I want to dig deeper into the phenomenon of cryptocurrency and addiction. So if you are a dopey nation person and you feel like you might have a problem with crypto or you totally disagree with me and think that uh, cryptocurrency is nothing like gambling, write me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I think in the old days they would call like really dank bud the crypto. Is that true or am I just making that up? I don't know. But today we have a change of pace on the show. So we have a very devoted, very, very, very special member of the Dopey Nation named Kimberly Rhodes. She is active on Twitter, which you guys all should be. I wish you guys were all as active and involved as Kimberly Rhodes. Kimberly Rhodes took it upon herself uh, to reach out to a, to a bunch of people. Well, I don't even know who she reached out to. But I do know she reached out to Bronwyn Wyndham Burke of the Real Housewives of Orange County. And out of nowhere, Bronwyn responded. And then she agreed to come on the show. It's interesting, though, because this Real Housewife is not the first Real Housewife that's been on Dopey. Now, I wonder if all you Dopeyettes, you hardcore, original Dopey Nation folks, remember the first Real Housewife on Dopey. I'm sure you don't. It was a very, very brief moment while I was waiting tables at Katz's. Her name was Carol Radswell. She was on The Real Housewives of New York for a second, and she told a very quick dopey story about microdosing, I think acid. It might have been mushrooms. Acid or mushrooms in Aspen, Colorado. But this is Bronwyn Wyndham Burke. I am incredibly excited to have her on the show. But before we get to her, I want to know what makes you guys happy. What interferes with your happiness? What prevents you 
from achieving your goals. Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist and connect in a safe and private online environment, which is incredibly convenient. I know that when I talk about what's bothering me, I tend to feel better. And BetterHelp.com, that's better H-E-L-P, Com is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel like that's important. It's incredibly affordable, way more affordable than traditional counseling, and it's totally, totally and obviously confidential. They help with depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping issues, trauma. I've had sleeping issues lately, but it's because I left my stupid pillow at Kalahari. But that's another thing. BetterHelp.com helps you feel better. And if you want to start living a happier life today, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. Let BetterHelp help you to be happier. So here she is, Bronwyn Wyndham Burke. And we have this incredible opportunity to have a real-life, super glamorous TV star in her babushka on Zoom. Her name is Bronwyn. Welcome to the show. Ms. Hey there. Bron- I know. I am rocking my sweatshirt, my woman's riot sweatshirt and turban. It doesn't get more glamorous than this. <laughs> Do they say babushka in Orange County? No, they don't. That is fully just like maybe in Israel and Manhattan. <laughs> okay, well, I think you should bring it to the OC. <laughs> That's good. We need we need a little mix in there. That that will work. <laughs> you need some more ethnicity to the OC, but I want to introduce you more properly. Her name is Bronwyn Windenburg. She has seven children. She, you recently came out, which is very exciting, and you recently came out as and you recently got sober. So congratulations yeah. and welcome to Dopey. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I can honestly say I've never done anything like this. I normally avoid Twitter, you know, and I just, someone's like, you should do this. Okay. Cause most of our stuff, we have to get permission to go through PR. This is the first time I'm like, fuck it. Yeah. Let's do something fun. Like this looks funny. Nice. <laughs> now, and I just want to give the dopey nation the backstory, which is dopey super fan and lesbian Kimberly Rhodes who is just a wonderful uh, Dopey Nation person, wrote you to come on the show, and then yeah. you responded right away. And I wish everybody did that. Amazing. Yeah, like, okay. So sure. I, I did something that I never do, and I wanted to give Kimberly credit, and I knew that she was a huge fan of yours, so I wanted to see if she had any questions. So I want to start with some That's of so cool. Kimberly's questions, and they're good. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Did you realize that you were a lesbian or an addict first? Okay, I've always known that I liked women, but I never thought I was gay. I just thought I liked both. So a full, like, a just, just women, full-blown lesbian, that was after. I've known I was an addict. I think, I mean, I didn't admit it to myself for a while, but I've known that for much, much longer. So I thought I was, you know, I thought I was bi for a very long time. I never really put it in a box, but I think I knew I was an addict first. It's kind of easier, I guess, 
is it easier to live with the idea of being an addict than it is? Because, like, you're when you become, I mean, like, obviously, I don't know what it is to be gay or bi, but I imagine it's a fundamental shift in identifying yourself, whereas being an addict isn't the same kind of fundamental shift, I don't think. Being an addict and being an alcoholic for me, it's it's not so much an identity. It's like, you know, um, whereas, you know, it's been about eight months now since I've come out. And it's taken me, it took about six months for me to really be comfortable in that skin. Um, and that's more of an identity, it's sort of like being a mother. It's just something that I wear. Being gay is something that just fits. Being an addict and an alcoholic, that's just, I don't want to say a side note because it is a big part of my life, but it's like, it's not something that's there all the time, if that makes sense. It's an affliction more than a, a, an identity, right? It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. I get that. And like, and you came out both gay and alcoholic on The Real Housewives of Orange County, right? Yeah, it was quite a year for me. 2020 was, that, it was a shit show. Is there something in the water on the set? Like, what the fuck happened that, you, that it happened <laughs> no, like that? No, we don't drink water on the set. They only have tequila. That was part of the problem. Right. <laughs> so no it was just for me it was mainly i got sober before we started filming so and that was more of a i can't go on like this like i am about to start filming and i don't even remember half the shit i did last year and i'm like way worse now and i was sitting in a hotel room in miami day four of a bender where i couldn't even leave the hotel room anymore and i just had this moment of this has to stop it was like has to stop today Today has to be the last day I drink. And I tried getting sober a few times, uh, and it never worked. And, like, I don't know what's different this time, except for the fact that I'm actually, like, doing the work and I'm going to meetings. But um, for some reason, this time it feels different to me. Coming out was, I think that was a lot to do with sobriety, but also the pandemic. Because I was quarantining with my best friend, and I accidentally fell in love with her. It's a love story. What was, tell us more about that. I mean, so she was in the program for many years. She was in a 12 step program for like 22 years. And I don't remember exactly how many days I was sober, maybe like two and a half months, but I was 45 days into quarantine. I remember that very vividly. I'm sitting in front of the garage fridge. Cause I'm in California. So we have, you know, garages and stuff with fridges, fridges. with fridges in them. Nice. That's perfect yeah, for the alcoholic yeah. too. <laughs> And I had kept, I never, I never drank wine. I was always allergic to it. So I never drank it. So I kept wine for guests because I was really big at making my addiction really comfortable on other people. You know, I didn't want them to be put out by it. And, uh, I roll my eyes at myself now, but, um, so I was sitting in front of the fridge with a bottle of wine about to drink it when I called her and she said, just get through tonight and I will be there tomorrow. And we quarantined together And it was sort of this, you know, very weird situation. We were only with each other. We're in the house all the time. She's helping me with my program because there's no meetings anymore. And it took me a while to find Zooms. I didn't have a sponsor yet at that time. And, like, she became my everything. Right. And I, you know, I I fell madly in love with her in this weird way that I wasn't anticipating. We'd been just friends. And then, you know, my husband obviously sees this happening. He doesn't really know what to do because, yeah, I'm sort of having an emotional affair, but I'm also not drinking. And it's like, fuck, which is worse. Like, I I don't know. So it was just a very interesting thing. Now, that didn't end up going anywhere. That wasn't a physical relationship. But it definitely started me on the pathway of who is my real, like, what is my authentic self? Right. 
And then all this stuff happened in my marriage. My husband cheated on me. My best friend was like, set up a fake Tinder account. And then I went on like a date and I was with a woman for the first time sober. And I came home. So I'd been with lots of women in my life, but never sober. And um, I came home and I called my, my best friend. I'm like, okay, so I'm not even a little bit straight. Like not even a little. I now know for sure I don't ever want to be with like a man again. I want to be with women. And that's when I met my girlfriend, um, Chris. Let me ask you this, because you said a lot of stuff. And I also want to go back in time. We're, we're dealing with, like, the present very well, but I want to go back to the past. First question is, like, when I got sober and when I go to meetings and probably where you go to meetings, we all say one day at a time. It's never, never, right? Is the sexuality piece 100% in stone? I never want to be with a man or again, or is it just for today I'm happy being with women? Is it? No, I, I'm, I am definitely going to be with women only okay so you're setting it in stone a hundred percent yeah it's it's fit it's almost like the way that i describe it is i've been wearing the wrong size coat my whole life okay i couldn't quite make it fit and now it's like oh you know like i thought that i didn't like cuddling i thought i didn't really you know like watching movies and like no i like all that stuff i was just with the wrong gender I just thought I was like a bitch, and I didn't like people. It turns out I was not a bitch. I was just a lesbian. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> and and a little bit of a bitch, but just you know yeah. now I'm both. Yeah, now now you're you're sober. Your bitch is under control, and you're enjoying being a lesbian. And more power to you. <laughs> right. Um, let's go back in time. Like, when do you think? addict you started like when did when did like that's one of my favorite questions it's like when did you realize that you weren't like everybody else just normally looking back my first drink I never drank normally I mean that first warm keystone at the beach summer before my freshman year of high school I remember it I remember how much I loved it I would drink till I threw up and I don't remember a lot I've, I've always been a blackout drinker um, but I don't even know if I thought my drinking was abnormal at that time. Like it didn't even dawn on me, even though it ran in my family, I have a family of alcoholic and addicts. It didn't dawn on me that my drinking was different than other people's. Um, probably, uh, until I was 21, Sean and I broke up when I, for like a few months when I was 21 and it was, a sh- it was awful. Like it was a shit show and I couldn't really take care of myself. Um, and I think I knew then. And wait, hold up, hold started, up. This is important though, because Sean is your current yeah. husband. Because you're still yeah. married, he cheated on you recently, and we, I want to know about that too. But you you met him in high school, and you you're yeah, talking. No, about- my I I just started college. So I was 18. Wow. No, yeah, I was 18 when I met him, like the second third week of college. So that's a long, 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 long relationship. 26 years. That's what I'm saying, and seven children. Yeah. So like. That was the first time I didn't have a babysitter, really, in a way, like someone to take care of me. And I got myself into some really shitty situations, like really, really unsafe situations. I'm, you know, like most of us, we go like, wow, that's awesome that I'm still alive, you know? Um, Hit us with the dopey. Hit us with the dopey. What happened? What's the Give us the worst young Bronwyn dopey story. Oh my God. She was such a nightmare. Like I had no problem just going to LA. I would, I lived in Orange County, but I would drive up to LA making new friends being like, Hey, try this. I'd be like, okay. You know, like 
like right now with the vaccine, people are like, ooh, I don't know if it's safe. I'm like, I took drugs from someone in Compton before. Like, this is not what's going to kill me, you know? Um, just that kind of stuff. Like, staying up for three days, going to random places with random people. I mean, we didn't have Ubers. We didn't even have cell phones back then. So, like, I remember telling my family, oh, I'm going to so-and-so's house. I'm, like, taking out off to Mexico for, like, three days where no one knew where I was. That's not a good choice, you know? Um, just, I remember like there was a period of times when my parents were paying my bills, but like, I wasn't really doing too well. So my, my, I would date older people that would help take care of me. And two of them were like owners of these restaurants in town, but they were next door and I was dating both of them. And like, I remember walking out of one and having to duck because like the other guy was coming out and I was like, Oh my God, like, what was I thinking? I was just, I was an idiot. I was just young and stupid and thank God. And you know, thank, thank goodness that I ended up okay. Well, you, there are classic <laughs> shenanigans and it sounds like you were very fortunate to have Sean like that probably yeah. kept you alive in a big way. Oh, for sure. So he's always been like, and keep in mind, like a lot of husbands and wives lie to each other about what they're doing and what they're not doing. I've never had to lie to Sean. He knows everything I'm doing. Um, a lot of the times he's right there by my side, my partner in crime, but he's always had that off switch. You know what I mean? We're like, okay, the party's over for me. The party never was over. Like, I don't know that if you've done this, I feel like most of us have, I would always make rules. Like I'm only going to drink on the weekends. I'm not going to do drugs after midnight. Like I made so many rules and I always broke them. Sure. You know, I broke them as soon as I would set them. I I remember like my (laughs) rules, my rules, like with, I, I was a big, pothead before I became a heroin addict and like as soon as I started smoking weed I had just decided I'm gonna smoke weed every day like that was gonna be who I was so my other rules always had a hard time sticking because I had this basic (laughs) stoner nomenclature established so like if I smoked weed every day I could see why people would do pills every day or heroin every day what were your drugs besides uh alcohol in the beginning I mean, in the beginning, I smoked a lot of pot, especially in high school, because I went to boarding school, and it was a lot easier to hide drugs than alcohol. Right. You know, you could, you could get really creative in boarding school. You would bury stuff outside so, like, they wouldn't find it in our rooms. Um, so, you know, and then we would have – it was easier to, when you're underage to get – like, we went to the Claremont Colleges, so drug dealers would come to campus where we couldn't buy beer. So – and no one had older brothers there. So – in high school, it was like pot and ecstasy mainly. Occasionally cocaine, but we weren't that, we didn't have that much money. Um, I think, like, I remember once in LA, we had like one really bad, some, I don't know what we knew that, but I'll never forget. I went to this like Christian boarding school, coming back in chapel, coming off like a two day bender in a wool jacket and my wool skirt, sitting in church and just being like sweaty, sweaty. I'm like, okay, I'm never going to do drugs again. Like, this is the worst decision I've ever made. Um, obviously, that was a rule I broke. But that's how it all kind of started. And I think back then it was pretty more, it was normal. Um, we just had a lot more freedom because we didn't have our parents. And whoever sends their kids to boarding school because they're making bad choices to think they're going to be safer, FYI, parents, that's not how it works. It's not going to work it's out. <laughs> like, you just have kids with like a lot of freedom. And, you know, normally they have a little more money and we just got into, you know, the same kind of trouble. We just, you know, did it under a different roof. So, but then when I I went to college, 
I'll never forget, like, I, you know, the first time Sean did ecstasy, it was because I'm like, here, take this. And uh, he's like, okay. And then he told me he loved me that night. I'm like, I know, right? <laughs> but then um, I got pregnant at 22. So, like, my young party days ended that day, the day I found out I was pregnant. And I'm very grateful because that did save my life 100%. I know for a fact that if I had just kept going at the rate I was going, it wouldn't have been good. Right. I, I, I often talk, you know, I have, I have two daughters and I didn't have a kid until I was, or my partner didn't have a kid till I was 35. So I often think that I would probably be dead if we hadn't had the kids. Um, being a, so you basically learned how to be a functional alcoholic as a mother. Um, I didn't drink over for, time. Yeah. Like, but I didn't drink. So 22, I had Bella at 22, I had another baby at 24, and another baby at 27. And I didn't really drink between any of those because our oldest had a seizure disorder. So I just did the full-time mom thing. It wasn't until 2008 when Jacob was two that we started. I started drinking again. So we had been broke our whole lives. Sean and I were broke. And when Jakey was two, we started making money. And we were, like, still young, and we kind of were like, we are going to go out and live the dream. We started going to Vegas all the time. It was the first time we would get, we had a nanny. Um, and we were, I mean, we were, we were such assholes. Like we just thought that we were, you know, living the dream. Um, and that's when we started having like threesomes and more fun and going out and doing Vegas and Miami and New York and downtown San Diego. And we kind of had this double life where half the time we're in the suburbs doing PTA and that kind of stuff. And then we'd have these crazy weekends, which, you know, I don't think anyone that knew us as mom and dad would ever have imagined how much fun we were at. Right. It was like Caligula on the weekend in, in Vegas. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And we managed to do that, or I managed to do that for a little while until it started to get out of control. I was dating someone at the time. Sean knew. I was dating a woman. So I was married, but I was still dating a woman. And she was fun and crazy. And I kind of started to go off the rails a little bit. And that was the first time I got tried to get sober. What was going on? What was going off the rails looking like then? It was just, it was just like a lot of partying, a lot of staying up late and then like not being present for the kids. Um, just, yeah. I mean, it wasn't anything like that bad, like I wasn't doing crazy stuff, like that, but I wasn't being a good parent at the time. Like I, I just, I don't know. I, I, it was the first time that I had any like freedom or anything in like eight years. And I was just off to the races and I was trying to keep it to the weekends. Right. And then slowly, but surely it was all those rules I made. Don't drink at home. Don't drink alone. You know, all that stuff. I was failing and i'm sure i'm sure it was it was like i'm sure there was a phenomenon of getting money getting freedom getting a girlfriend you know all of these things probably hit in a weird way in in a weird moment right yeah so i i took off um sean and i were fighting a lot too because he was traveling all the time so i left i took the kids to hawaii i spend my summers in hawaii and i've never drank there i i don't know why but there's something about Kauai. That is just spiritual to me. So I, I left. I took the kids. I was moving there. Um, I was like, I'm over this marriage. I, I, I'm starting over on an island. And uh, Sean came out. He reproposed. 
And then we moved. We pulled the geographic because I had been such a nightmare in my neighborhood. Like no one wanted me around anymore. Um, and so that kind of started the next round of me and my drinking. So we're in DC and I don't know if you, well, you live in New York. Okay. So I'm from California and like winter isn't a season. It's like seven months of gray. Yes. And we just kind of hung out. We sat in our basements. I drank too much. I kind of spiraled pretty bad there. And that's when I ended up like on the floor, checking myself into the psych ward because I was so depressed. I, and I like, I never forget when the thing is like, you have to stop drinking. I'm like, no, that's not my problem. I'm depressed. You know, I just had a miscarriage. I'm sad. Um, not for a moment thinking it was the alcohol, but they told me to stop drinking. I'm like, okay, I will. I went to AA, but it didn't stick. And then we put up, pulled another geographic and then we were in Miami uh, on vacation. I was like, I'm not going back. I'm not getting on that plane. I'm going to stay here with the kids. I need sunshine. That will fix me. Sun. I need the sun. Um, Vitamin D. Yeah. That, you know, that'll cure everything. Just every time things get really bad, move. That's classic. It's classic alcoholic thinking. Totally. Yeah. Like, oh, no, it's just where I am. If I start over in a new city, everything will be better. And so that, that took me, I stayed sober for about nine months. And that started spiraling again. Uh, We were going out all the time. We would get in the uh, babysitter at night for the kids. We'd go out all night, which is pretty normal in Miami because we could walk to the nightclubs. And a lot of the parents at our kids' school worked in that industry. So it wasn't weird to walk your kids to school in the morning and then sleep all day. Like, that wasn't that abnormal where we were living. And we were just on this cycle. We would go out all night, sleep when the kids were at school, hang out with them, and then do it again and again and again. And then... um. Then I got unmanageable where I couldn't pick the kids up from school. I remember vividly one day having to call my girlfriend because I, I didn't have to drive even because we lived somewhere where I never had to drive. I had to walk and I couldn't walk to get my kids. And that's when I went and I went to Mexico. I did something called Ibogaine. I I did, I've it. done Ibogaine. Oh, okay. So that was... Why did you do... You do yeah. Hold up. You did Ibogaine to, to stop yeah. the alcoholism. I did Ibogaine yeah. to stop the heroin. But I took it unsupervised in my apartment on 24th Street, and it did, needless to say, it didn't work. Tell me about your Ibogaine experience. I'm dying to hear about it. So, oh, God, I'll never forget. So, for, like, I'm obviously, I'm drinking on my way down there. So, I knew I had to get sober. My mom had found it because my mom's a big believer in plant-based medicine. So, she had found me a clinic in uh, Cancun. Miami Cancun is a super short flight. And I'll never forget, like, how my all of my girlfriends rallied to help Sean with the kids and what like everyone was like, girl, you are a mess. Um, and I, I didn't want to do rehab and I wanted this, like, I'm like, okay, this will work. I'll try this. So I go down there. I was drunk on the plane. I'll never like, you know, trying to find the van that took me to this clinic at the Cancun airport being like, what the fuck is happening? I'm going to be like, I've been to Cancun many times since then, so I was completely safe. But in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm alone. I'm going to be kidnapped. Um, and I was probably paranoid from all the drinking. So uh, I went to the clinic the first day. They do all your vitals and stuff. Well, the first day, they get you sober. They're like, okay, girl, you're done. Um, the second day, they take all your vitals. And then the third day, we did the Ibogaine, which they start with a small amount. Because I did it in a medical situation to make sure that it's okay. And then you do the Ibogaine, which lasts about eight hours. 
Um, for me, it was a beautiful kind of journey. I had a lot to do with my childhood. Um, I know there was someone in the room watching me to keep me safe, but I don't really remember too much about her. Um, what do you remember? What do you remember from the ibogaine experience itself? So I had only done hallucinogens once in my life. So when wait, I was hold a teenager. Up. Hold up. So <laughs> you've only done it one time, and you're going to basically do possibly the most intense psychedelic experience ever. Did that cross your mind on your way there at all? Oh, yeah. So I, I had done mushrooms once as a teenager in the desert uh, in Joshua Tree with my friends, and it was the worst night of my life. There was cockroaches everywhere. Like, I have, I, I'm not a hallucination person. That's not my jam. I'm a control freak. So I was scared. I'm like, please don't let there be bugs everywhere. Um so I kind of, before I took the medicine, I went on my own. I sat there and I, I set intentions. What do you want from this? I want to be a better mother. Um, I want to, you know, I want to be the best brawn when I can be. I want to know the reasons like why I drink. So I did set pretty intense intentions and I went into it with those on a loop because I, I didn't want to go dark. I didn't want to remember the cockroaches. So I was like, okay. The night before they had a TV, I'm like watching like Hallmark movies. You know what I mean? Like, okay, good get, thoughts only. Get centered. Get centered. Yeah. Okay. Um, my journey had a lot to do about my childhood, my mother, my grandfather who helped raise me. Um, that was mine. That was my journey. My what, journey was all childhood what, stuff. Were there any weird people there with triangles on their heads in your in your uh, ibogaine experience? There wasn't. Mine was very pixelized. So. When my eyes were closed, it was like a very fluid, interesting whoosh. When I would open my eyes, like if I had to reset the stage almost, I could. So it never got scary because I could always open them. But then the world was very pixelized. Um, I do remember throwing up at one point and my like vomit became this little creature that ran away across the floor and like laughing. He it's so funny. Um, but for the most part, my eyes were closed. So it wasn't what I was seeing in real life. It what was happening in my head. No, I had I had a, that, I had a similar experience. Keep going though. I want to hear more. I want to hear more. Yeah, and it was just it was almost like almost like if you're on like a a, a really slow like a roller coaster, but a slow and gentle one where I was twisting and turning around things and like oh, and that's where that unconditional love came from. And yeah, it's been. Eight years now, nine years, so I don't remember all of it, but that that was a great choice. I also, when I came back from that, that's when I decided to have more kids. Part of my journey was knowing that I wasn't done being a mom. Do you think the ibogaine, like, changed you? Did it make you more spiritual? Did it make you more open to, like, the, you know, woo-woo crazy shit out there in the universe, or did it not? I've always been open to the woo-woo crazy shit. Okay. I mean, my mom is a high priestess at Burning Man. So, there you go. You know, like, I'm a big believer that if it works for you, it works for you, and that I don't know shit when it comes to anything spiritually or religious. So I'm open to everything. So you know if I mean? your mom I, your mom was a high priestess at Burning Man, was she a big psychedelics taker? You're going to have to ask her that question. That's a great answer. <laughs> so you come home, the woo-woo shit has taken hold, the ibogaine was kind of like the tunnel of love to show you what you needed yeah. to see. And you you, yes. it, you were changed. Yes, completely. And I will say for anyone that's ever considering it, for me, it wasn't just the drinking that went away. 
it was all the addictive behaviors, shopping, um, like inappropriate sexual things, like all of the things, eating even, I, you know, it was all of the things that I did as an addict behavior were just gone in a day. It was really nice. And so then I didn't have a drink for another seven years after that. That's amazing. Yeah. And I didn't have a desire to, that was the craziest part too, was I didn't want to drink. And I, I had so much energy for a few, like I would say about four years. It was just, I was so much, I should probably do it again. Cause I'm fucking tired. <laughs> like, wait, now I'm thinking about that. That would be nice. But, um, it was just nice. And then, and then the, I got the TV show and I weaned my final baby and I thought after this amount of time that maybe I wasn't an alcoholic. I was fine. I just went so many years without drinking and it not being an issue that I'm fine. I can drink. And it was in concert with getting the gig on Real Housewives? Well, yeah. So I, I Hazel, my youngest, my seventh baby, was about eight months or nine months when I found out I had the job. And so I weaned her because I knew I wouldn't be able to, because I never gave my kids bottles. So I knew I wouldn't be able to film and nurse exclusively. So I weaned her right around the time I started the show. Now, my wife is addicted to the Real Housewives of New York. She just can't stop with the show. And whenever I tune in, it's like wall-to-wall madness, craziness, you know, drinking, craziness. You know what I mean? And I'm assuming Orange County is similar. Now, as somebody, or it's not as bad, you're giving me a look. But I think, yeah, no, because every show sort of has its own dynamic. So, and I love New York. I love Leah. Leah's in recovery, too. Um, I... I, every show has their own different dynamics. Our show also has a lot of the family stuff. We live in the suburbs. Most of the women on the New York one are single and their kids are older. Right. So our show does have a lot more people with younger kids. So it's a different mentality. New York's a fun one, in my opinion. Those girls are crazy and like they're allowed to do that. If I did some of the shit that like the New York ones did, I would get yelled, like yelled at even more than I already do. Right. So every show has its own personality, I would say. I guess what I'm asking, though, is like as somebody because you you went for the Ibogaine seeking a spiritual experience to deal with your alcoholism. Did you have fear in the back of your head that getting involved with these rowdy rich ladies could bring it back or it never it didn't occur to you like that? No, it didn't. Um, uh, My friend, uh, my friend Gina Kehoe, she's a family friend was on the first season She's great. She's fine. Like, I, I really didn't think it would be an issue at all. And when did it become one? Pretty early. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I would say, like, two weeks into filming. Because I would get to a, a scene and I would start drinking so heavily because I was nervous. Of course. It's so much pressure, you know? right? Was, like, that was sort of my go-to. So I was getting pretty drunk pretty early. Um yeah, that was bad. <laughs> How did it like, because I, I would imagine if I was on Real Housewives, I would be anxious all the time. There's free liquor all the time. Everybody's drinking. It seems like a natural thing. Like, yeah. who, who start? when did you realize it was like, oh, it's, it's happening? Like, when did you sense it coming back? Or was it immediate? There's, an, there's like an entire party. It didn't make it to air. No, Miraval. Probably Miraval. We were in um, Arizona 
And I, I was drinking the whole time. I was hiding alcohol too. Once I started hiding alcohol, that's when I knew. Right. Yeah. So and I thought I could control it. I thought I could be better, but I couldn't. Well, I mean, it's, it's, if it is, if it is an illness, you have it. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. It takes all those things. I've got more really good questions from Kimberly Rhodes. Do you want to hear them? Okay. Here yeah. we go. Do you think the Real Housewives lifestyle makes it easy for addictions to fester? Yes. Of course it does. Yeah. There's also a sense when you're filming of, of, um, of safety. So when we're in these places, you know, we have so many people taking care of us. We know we're going to get home safely. We know nothing bad's going to happen. And you're kind of in a bubble. And yeah, you know. Sounds great. Sure. Sounds great to me. Um, does anybody, does anybody go off the rails to the point where they're asked to leave and not come back or does the chaos just make the show much better every time? No, um, I'm, there's stuff that they don't air, but that's the, that's the thing is they don't have to show everything. If you go too far, they don't have to. Show. So tell us about the end of the road, the bottom, like, cause I mean, I think again, where we started this conversation was you came out as a lesbian on Real Housewives and you came out as an alcoholic. What was the end, end, end of the drinking? You talked about kind of the last moment, but what built up to that? And did Sean play a role in that? Yeah, he did. So I had gone to a very, like, I had gone to a brunch with mom friends uh, that I don't remember. And I, I do remember the only reason I was going was that when Sean came home and I smelled like tequila, I would have an excuse to. So my friend came and picked me up. I went to this very fancy place for uh, for lunch. And I don't remember how I got home. I don't remember anything. And I called my friends the next day and I said, did I do anything that I should be embarrassed about? And they said, and my girlfriend said, yeah, honey, you did. And it turns out I had been a nightmare. And it's this restaurant in Neiman Marcus. Um, I had been drunk and out of control. And I'd said some really horrible things to a woman I have a lot of respect for. Um, her name's Jessica. And she's just, I mean, she is an amazing woman. And I had said rude things. So I had written them a text message that day. And I said, I'm so sorry. I have a problem. And I'm going to get help. And the next day I flew to Miami and I had the best of intentions of not drinking. I was going for a birthday party. Um, and that lasted a very short amount of time. Uh, and so the first night I was hanging out with like Carrie from Dallas and uh, Jennifer from New Jersey, I ran into them in Miami. Everything was okay. The next day I met, you know, the other people I was there with, it was kind of okay. By the third night I was drinking around the clock. Um, I don't really remember it. I guess I've heard stories of some stuff I was doing. Like I broke someone's foot by stepping on them. Don't remember that. And by that point, I couldn't really leave the hotel room. Sean was very angry because I thought I was hiding my drinking. Um, cause I'd bought alcohol and hidden it, but I wasn't, he was so over me. Um, and he, he couldn't even look at me and he did say, if I didn't stop drinking, he was going to take the kids. And then, I've heard from friends. My circle had gotten very small at that point of people I trusted. Um, one of my good friends, Steven, I had been calling him and he was like, this isn't okay. Like, you're not okay. I don't, this is not fun. You're not having fun in Miami. Um, and I don't remember this, but he, he was concerned. He reached out to my husband. So Sean, I meant it. He was, if I didn't stop drinking, he was going to take the kids. So the middle of the night, the night before we flew back, I came 
we were sleeping in different rooms. We had a suite there. Um, and I just said, I can't physically stop drinking now. Like at this point I can't cause it hurts when I start to go through the draw. And he sat on me, physically restrained me from drinking. We got to the airport. It was bad. Um, and I don't recommend anyone do this. Don't detox on your own. I always have to clarify that it's going to be really dangerous. And that was a bad choice. We flew home and I had a really bad, I would say 24 hours of just shaking and like anxiety, pacing in circles, like sitting down. So like I couldn't make it go away. It was so bad. That feeling of detoxing is so uncomfortable in your soul. Um, and then the next day I sat down with the producers to like go through what was going on in our lives. And I remember telling them I was going on a cleanse. Uh, and then fast forward a couple of days where we went on a ski trip, which is like the worst thing you could do during detox is go to high elevation. So like another stupid thing. And I spiraled on that ski trip. It was not, a, it was not good. I was yelling. I was screaming. I was taking it out of my family. I tried to go drink. Call for him. Hey boy. I remember like, I don't care. I just need a drink. So, um, I called someone that I trusted, someone that's in the same industry. Her name's Captain Sandy. She's on a TV show called Below Deck. And she's been in recovery for 30 years. And she basically said, look, you have to tell the truth. You can't, you're not on the cleanse. You, you had no problem getting drunk on the show. Why are you having such a hard time getting sober? It's because of accountability. If you say you're an alcoholic, then you have to stay sober. And so I called um, my producer the second I hung up with the phone with her and said, here's the truth. I'm an alcoholic. Why do you suppose it is easier? Work. Why do you suppose it is easier to, to, be out of control on a show than say you need help on a show? For me, it was, if I knew I said I had, I was an alcoholic, then I couldn't drink anymore. Right. Like once I made that, once I put it out there, not, Oh, I'm taking a break or whatever. If I say it on national television, I'm an alcoholic, then I don't have an out. I have to, you know, then everyone will know. Um, which is true. That did end up saving my life. I often say, and I know these two, two things don't make sense. Getting sober on national television was the best thing I ever did, but I would never recommend anyone do it because it's the hardest thing I've ever done. For me, it it was that accountability. Yeah, is what it took. I mean, that's like accountability times a billion, because yeah. anything you do, any step you take, people are like, "She's drinking, she's drinking, she's lying, she's this." But I suppose like that's par for the course being on Real Housewives anyway, right? Yeah, a lot of what I do, people don't want to believe, and that's okay. That's their problem, not mine. You know, I've been sober for about 460 days now. Nice. One day at a time. Um, some of those days have been really easy, and some of those days have been really shitty. But for most of the time, it's just a sort of, you know, in the middle kind of thing. Well, good for you. And I think I think it takes balls to do what you do, and I think it's good. It, no, it doesn't take balls. It takes pussy because... Balls are weak, and my, I swear to God, that's the strongest part of my body. It's, it's birthed seven babies, and it's still alive. <laughs> so it takes, some serious, it takes some serious pussy to do what yes. you did, and, I, and yes. I commend you for it. And I also think, like, you know, like the idea of the Real Housewives, you know, kind of giving themselves a bad name. I think people who are in recovery that get to have fun on that show is good for the show. You know what I mean? It's just good for the show. It, it creates 
it creates a dialogue and it's not just women behaving badly or crazy. It's accountability in the world. Right. Like, um, what made you want to be on that show in the first place? Um, I, I just had my seventh baby and I've been a stay at home mom for 18 years and I wanted something more, you know, I wanted something for myself. And two days before I got the phone call, I was in bed crying. Like I need to do something more with my life. My husband was so supportive. He's like, okay, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to like, do you want to start a store? Do you want to go back to school? Like whatever you want, I'll support. And then two days later, the casting director calls and says, Hey, have you heard of this show? And I'm like, yeah. And I was literally like, well, that sounds fun. So sure. you, you were on their radar. So that's cool. Yeah. They, they uh, found me on Instagram. They're like, you know? we th- I had 600 followers. It's not like I was big on Instagram, but yeah, that's how they found me. We think you're real housewife material. Um, does your husband, I mean, you're in a, a very like non-traditional marriage. Is it like when you're having threesomes in the early days of Las Vegas in Caligula style, does your husband get jealous that maybe you're giving too much attention to the women? Uh, it never came up. No, I mean, he knew I liked women and that was just sort of the, you know, how it was. And he could do whatever he wants. He, he has, you guys both have the open door. You can see whoever you want, but you want to keep the marriage together. Yeah. I mean, this is still very new and we're getting along. We're best friends. So we're not rushed. It's sort of the one day at a time thing. We're just like, okay. And right now it's good. Well, right now it's, it's good. It takes a lot of pussy to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, it's awesome. I, and I really do appreciate you, uh, you being so candid and generous on our little show. I think that's awesome. I want to see if there's another, yeah. I want to see if there's another Kimberly Rhodes question before we go. I just want to give a shout out to Kimberly for making this happen. Like, you go, girl. I love that. Like, do you want to do it? Yes. Sure. Well, we have, we have an audience of like really cool people who are like, who want to get, who want, she wanted to hear your story. You know, she's this crazy fan of yours. Do you feel how comfortable? I mean, you seem very comfortable talking about all this stuff with me on the show. Like, uh, why aren't you more guarded about talking about it? I mean, that's a weird question, but why aren't you? You know, I probably should be because it gets me in a lot of trouble, but it's just how I've always been. And I'm not just like this on the show. This is how I am in real life. I have always shared everything. And there's, you know, there's a really, there's a story that saved my life when I was in DC and really depressed. Um, And my girlfriend had been so honest about her daughter's mental health struggles that it made me always promise to be open about mine. Because I do think that the more we share stories and normalize everything, like everyone has crazy shit in their life, like everyone. So if we just talk about it and normalize stuff, then less people are going to feel alone. You know, if we can talk about addiction and mental health and sexuality, then, I mean, think of how many lives we could save by people just feeling like they're, you know, quote unquote normal. Because no one's normal and everyone's just pretending. And so like, let's just stop pretending. Life is big, beautiful, crazy, hard, shitty, ugly, whatever. It's all the things and they're all okay. And no one needs to be alone. Like that was our point with Dopey in the first place was let us keep you comfortable. We've done all the stupid shit that you did. Let's, let's, let's hang out. You know what I mean? Like that was the idea. Yeah. And I do love that. Like when you go to AA meetings or whatever, recovery meetings, sorry. Yeah. Um, you made uh, it. You made it forty-three minutes without saying just, those two initials. You're, I could see your face. It's okay. It's I, I fuck it up all the time. Continue, please. Um, you know, you realize that like we've all done this bad, crazy shit. Yet everyone, no one judges you. It's like, yep, mm-hmm. You know, and I love 
that honesty and that realism, I wish to goodness that like the whole world had what we have, these safe places to tell, tell your stories and be yourself. Like if we could get everyone into a recovery room for whatever, that would be amazing. No, I go, I go to a meeting. uh, My meeting didn't stop. It's on the beach on Long Island. That's where I go. And it meets 365 days at eight in the morning on the beach. And I always look at it as this like, you know, like those old nature movies in Africa where there's the watering hole and all the crazy animals come to the watering hole. There's like water buffaloes and cheetahs and fucking flamingos and whatever. All these different animals need to go there. And I see, you know, 12 step and all that shit as the spiritual watering hole for all these different freaks who just need this spiritual nourishment. You know what I mean? And like. Yeah. And I love that, you know? Um, I got two more questions, one of which you're not okay. going to like. So I'll ask you the question you're not going to like first, and I know you're not even going to want to answer it. But in the Real Housewives scene, are people taking drugs? You can be anonymous. No. Nobody's taking drugs. No. not on my. I mean, I only know my show. I don't think on most of the shows, but not on my show. No one's dropping LSD in their eyeballs or, or, or drinking Ibogaine solution on the side? No, not on my show. Okay. Uh, next question. You talked kind of humorously about taking ibogaine as a spiritual cleanse, but what about this whole phenomena of uh, ayahuasca or microdosing uh, mushrooms or whatever as a spiritual move, like to get back to that kind of ibogaine-ish place? I think it's amazing. I think it can be really helpful for people with anxiety or post-traumatic stress syndrome. I think it is the next genre of medicine. And I think plant-based medicine is so much better than, you know, taking painkillers or stuff. A lot of people like they get into heroin do it because they start on painkillers. Right. So for me, I'm not, it's not for me. I really like being sober completely. That's important to me. Um, But for other people, I think it can be a really good tool and much better than like Western medicine that you get in a, in a bottle. Totally. And the last Kimberly Rhodes question is do money and fame make it easier? I mean, this is a very vague question, Kimberly, not the best Kimberly Rhodes question, but I'm going to ask you, uh, do money and fame make it easier or harder to start recovery? That depends on the person. That's what I was thinking. So tell Kimberly that's a bad yeah. question. Kimberly did a great job getting Bronwyn on the show, but that's not a great... I shouldn't have read the question. I'll take, I'll, I'll take responsibility. That's my fault. Uh, Bronwyn, you are a delight. Um, thank you so much for coming through to the Dopey Nation. I'm so glad to be here. Like I always say, if anyone in recovery is like, part of my family, you know, so... Well, are you in the, hair, in the hairdressers right now, or is that your house? No, this is my house. I just took a shower and worked out before we did this. And if I keep this on, then it won't dry too much, so I can still go style it without looking crazy. See, in my imagination, there's a mirror in the back, but I thought it was like one of those big hair dryer things. I imagine. No, this I, is just. I, yeah, I, I imagined that's you were in. Yeah, I thought you were in some closed down <laughs> salon, but that's how fucking uh-uh. stupid I am. All right, Bronwyn, thank you so much for coming through. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I will see. Hopefully, I will see you on Twitter. Mwah. Okay, that was Bronwyn Wyndham Burke. It was an honor to have a, a real-life TV star and real-life housewife of Orange County on the show. And um, 
I thought she's very brave to talk so openly about her sexuality. I love hearing another Ibogaine story. I felt very bonded to her. I wish if I could go back and redo the interview, or if I had time with Bronwyn again, I would want to know about her experience in the psych ward, and I want to know about her, uh, her mom, who's the high priestess of Burning Man. But maybe Bronwyn will come back. Bronwyn, if you're listening, will you come back? Hopefully she will. So, yeah, fucking, when we went, I want to tell you guys a little bit about my life, okay? When we went to Cal, whenever me and Linda go on a trip, okay, Linda brings her pillow. Maybe she brings two pillows. She brings two blankets, and she brings a fan because she needs the white noise of the fan to make sure that she can sleep. And every time we would go on the vacation, I'd bring, like, nothing and I would use those fucking hotel pillows that I really don't like because they're too soft in the middle, and I don't like that. I like a thin, firm pillow. That is what I like. A thin, like, I don't know, five-inch pillow. That's all I need. A thin, firm pillow. Five inches, little bit of give, whatever. So I decide that I'm going to be cool, and Nora brings her pillow, and she brings her blanket, and I'm like, I'm bringing mine this time. So I bring my pillow. I sleep with Susan, who, like, sleeps fucking perpendicular to me, like, hitting me all night. But I have the pillow, and, um, and I slept great. And right before we left, I had to do work for Katz's, and I had to go take a phone call. And, um, and it was, like, right at checkout while I did that. So I made Linda. Like, I took most of the shit out, and I made Linda take the rest of it. And uh, I packed up the car. And I forgot my fucking pillow. And it wasn't until we were uh, halfway home did I remember it. And Linda forgot it. I forgot it. It's gone now. I called Kalahari. They don't know what happened to my pillow. I'm not going to get it back. And now I sleep on a new inferior pillow and I can't sleep. And Linda still has three perfect pillows. Linda sleeps with three pillows underneath her head and then she takes this disgusting pillow and puts it over her face. And you think I'm exaggerating? She does it every night. It is crazy. Um, but I need a, now I need a thin, firm pillow and I honestly don't know where to get one. So if anyone in the Dopey Nation has any suggestions on how to get a perfect thin, firm pillow, please let me know, because in Target, it's like all bullshit pillows. It's dopeypodcast at gmail.com with your pillow suggestions. I used to live in a house, in my parents' house, there were just millions of pillows like that. It seems like they don't make pillows like that anymore, and I don't want to get some old, used, nasty pillow. Anyway, speaking of voicemails, uh, I just got this voicemail, I'm going to read it, he says, first I'm going to read the email and then I'll play the voicemail. He said, decided it was finally time to share a dopey tale with the nation. Anyways, this is what I got. If it's good enough, give it a play. Please don't drop my name. Your show is the best show in the world. And I came to it at the most important time of my life. Thanks for everything you do, Dave. It is so much appreciated. You seriously helped save my life. And if that is the case with me, then I assure you it is for countless others. Me not say toodles. And I'm not going to say his name. Uh, thank you, unmentionable name person. Uh, I love the voicemail. Here we go. Dave, Dopey Nation, what up? This is a loyal Dopey listener from the Midwest. Uh, yeah, been sober for a little over two years now. Uh, 
drugs of choice or coke and, and dope and also meth. But, uh, yeah, dopey's been a huge part of my recovery, the alt-recovery alt movement, something I prescribe to. I also am involved in 12 steps. But anyway, figured I'd drop a little dopey. Been wanting to for a long time. Just, uh, I don't know, embarrassed, I guess. So, anyway... Back in the day, uh, early 20s, before my addiction became a fucking crippling nightmare and was still fun, uh, me and my ex-girlfriend and my best friend and his girlfriend decided to go to an amusement park uh, in the Midwest region. And uh, <laughs> we had a vial of liquid acid and dose. Like, I don't know, I probably had like 10 hits. We were faced... Obviously, it was fright night at this location because it was close to Halloween, so you could ride the roller coasters like towards night. And there was people dressed up, like park employees, like dressed up like scary. They would jump out and scare you. And needless to say, <laughs> acid and super big roller coasters and people dressed up in crazy outfits. It was sensory overload to the max. We had an absolute blast, but it was too much. And uh, <laughs> at some point, uh, me and my ex-girlfriend decided that it would be a good idea to have sex. Uh, I think our sensory overload had something to do with it. So we go to this place that we think is out of view and have acid sex <laughs> and <laughs> get caught right away. Uh and they take us to the amusement park jail with the amusement park police. Um, luckily, my buddy had the dose on him because they searched us. I had a bunch of nugs on me. And they took those and basically threatened us that we were going to go to jail. And I don't know if you've ever been detained while tripping balls, but uh, it was pretty terrifying. My ex-girlfriend was like, <laughs> like losing her mind. And, you know, I wasn't having a good time either, but luckily they ended up not <clears throat> calling the actual police. They uh, took our picture while we were in the amusement park jail. I got to see the wall of banned people, and most of them were a lot scarier than us two tie-dye, long-haired, hippied <laughs> people, but we got banned for life from this particular amusement park. Yeah, I don't know, that's the story. I uh, love the show, Dave. Keep it up. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles. I love so many things about that voicemail. First of all, I love his sloppy voice. Secondly, I love that he had liquid LSD and talked about his nugs and that he was faced and tripping balls. The only question I have is what kind of an amusement park locks you up for fucking? I feel like they could kick you out, but they can't lock you up. What kind of an amusement park is that? Dopey Nation, if you have any insight to getting locked up fucking on liquid LSD at an amusement park, please let me know. Um, that's something that I wish I had experienced, which was liquid LSD. You know, those uh, the bottles, the sweet breath bottles full of liquid LSD or the Murin bottles and liquid LSD in your eyes. But I appreciate that voicemail. Anybody that is embarrassed to send in a voicemail, do what this fine, upstanding member of the Dopey Nation did. Send it in. Let your freak flag fly. It's fucking good stuff. And uh, speaking of freak flag flying, 
I don't know. I mean, I know how many of you guys are Patreon listeners, and I could figure out how many actually listen to the show. Um, but this week on the Patreon, we had this really weird thing happen where this woman uh, called up or wrote me an email and told me that she was in contact with Chris and, um, and that she witnessed Chris. Uh, well, I'm not going to spoil it, but the, the fact of the matter is that um, it was very beautiful to hear from somebody that felt so connected to the show that she felt like she was visited by Chris. And it's a pretty interesting listen. Uh, I don't mean to be shameless in plugging Patreon, but if you want to hear that, go to Patreon. It was pretty nuts. I'm going to read you her email. Uh, and it was very weird because we were driving back from Pennsylvania and uh, I was checking the email and I got this email that said, hello, I would like to talk with Dave. Let me know what's possible. Thanks, Steph. And I wrote very, very like me being Mr. Mr. Natural. I said, what can I do for you? And she said, thanks for contacting me. This is a conversation I would like to have by phone. I have a lot to say that's not possible by email or text. I am a psychic and have information about Chris from the beyond. I know it sounds weird, but I am legit. Uh, A little bit about me. I have always been psychic since childhood. I have just known things, felt energy, had dreams about events that have then come true, etc., uh, she's super, uh, she wrote, super sensitive, musician, writer, and I have struggled with addiction most of my life starting in early ch- adulthood. My drugs of choice were drinking and gambling. I have been sober for almost 30 years now. As a psychic, as psychic as, as psychic as I always have been, a totally new window opened up for me when I had a near-death experience at 17 years old. After this experience, it was, is, it was as if the curtain that separates life and death became thin, and I began to be able to be in touch with those from the other side, or shall I say it, they get in touch with me. My friend seems to understand this a lot better than me. She says I'm a natural shaman and a portal, saying that people who have passed on can see my light and know that I am a point of contact. One year ago, I was listening to a radio station, and they were talking about your podcast and about your partner, Chris, dying and about the podcast, and I was impressed and intrigued. So I have been listening for all this time, feeling drawn, feeling support in ways that I haven't been before. I am a loner and an isolator, but also in the public eye, and I admire the unique understanding that you and Chris had for starting your podcast you will never know how much you helped so many. Your beacon of light. The other night I had a conversation in my heart with Chris and I thanked him and said if there was ever any contact he wanted to make with me or if he had anything to say or if I could help him in any way that please let me know. I believe that Chris was the kind of person who would never have asked if I hadn't asked. So last night I had an involved dream and this is what I want to share with you. It was powerful and amazing. Also, he's very funny. I don't understand this, but his final comment to me was, tell Dave that I didn't sleep with you, meaning me. I have no idea what this means, but it must be some kind of humor that he had. Anyway, it's just to clarify for you that this is legit, and he did make contact with me, and I want to share what happened in the dream and the conversation if you are interested. Um... And that was her first email, 
And um, and we wound up talking that night, and I recorded it for Patreon because I didn't have a Patreon episode, and I really wanted to hear what she had to say, and it was incredible. So listen if you want. Uh, it really, like, I don't know, it made me feel something. I don't know what you guys would think about it, but it made me feel something. I guess it's because I do miss Chris a lot and any kind of, like, connection to him I love. But in other Bitcoin news, years ago, a Dopey Nation fan in England sent Chris $200 in Bitcoin back when Bitcoin was much less valuable. And I asked the psychic to ask Chris what happened to the money because it's gone. And I know Bitcoin has taken a dip, but we're still up like 75% since we got the 200 bucks. So if you're listening and you know about this or you're a psychic and can place this missing Bitcoin also, send an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And in other news, I don't know if you guys know about this, but they found, someone said, it was Anthony Cumia, who was a part of the old Opie and Anthony show back in the day, and also Anthony Cumia, who shared the Anthony and Artie show on Compound Media, and Anthony Cumia was on Joe Rogan, and he said that he knew Artie Lang was alive and well, living with his mother someplace in Florida. So, if you're interested, I've been writing Artie fucking probably just about every week for a year, and he's never written me back. So, maybe one day Artie will return to the show. Hopefully he's doing well. Uh, If you guys have any uh, information on Artie Lang's whereabouts, please, again, email us at dopeypodcast.gmail.com. Please leave a review. Make it friendly and five stars, and maybe my dad will read it. Um... I'll read this review we just got. It's kind of fucking annoying. It's from Jasper Dudke, or Dudke, Dudke, D-O-O-D-K-E. And he says, criticism, hopefully helpful. Dave, love your insight and ability to conduct great interviews. But Christ on a bike, talk to a sound engineer about levels or watch a YouTube video. Keep up the good work. Congrats on 300. Thank you, Jasper Dude Key. I feel like the levels have been good lately. What are you talking about? Jasper, write me an email, dopeypodcast at gmail.com, and let me know which levels you're talking about. Anyway, I think that's it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please be in touch. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time y'all are hilarious and it's just gotten me through some really hard times and though i'm not clean myself you know it gives me a lot of hope for the future um i really like dave's song and i'm gonna do a little cover of it here on my banjo hope y'all don't mind too much i wrote a uh, third verse myself sorry about the poor quality it's just on my phone and, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune.
Makes it through the uh, big inbox of emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. I, if not, I know it kind of sucks. All right, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.